0: You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul.
1: Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today, I have someone that I would consider as a legend in in, in chaplaincy, uh, Chaplain Hank Dunn. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. You know, let me share this. Uh, many years ago, when I started as a new hospice chaplain, at the resource office, they had this book, Had Choices for Loving People. And I remember getting a copy of it and taking it home and actually reading it. <laughs> so when, when you reached out to come on the show... And you sent your books. And when I opened the envelope and I saw this book, I'm like, oh, my God, I know this book. I've read this. <laughs> but I couldn't put two or two together till I received the book. I'm like, this guy is a legend. <laughs> my God, I'm so honored. I feel like in this episode, I just want to celebrate your work, you know, and what you've done for the uh, ministry of chaplaincy and for all hospice chaplains and chaplains in end-of-life care, man. You've done an amazing work. Thank you. Thank you. So how where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Florida. I uh a Florida native. I know a lot of people think there's no such a thing as a Florida native, but I grew up in Tampa. Uh most of my years we were in Miami for 2 years. My dad had a job down there, but we came back to Tampa and I graduated from high school in Tampa and um uh of interest maybe to the chaplaincy people. Uh, I, I grew up Southern Baptist, uh, cradle roll, we called it, in the Southern Baptist <laughs> Church. And uh, um, then um, I went to University of Florida in uh, Gainesville and um, majored in history. I since the call to the ministry while I was a freshman at the University of Florida and headed – I knew I was headed towards seminary, um, and then went to Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, got an MDiv there, and was ordained at the uh, St. Matthew's Baptist Church in Louisville, and I um, served a church in uh, Macon, Georgia. I was youth minister the first five years in the ministry. Actually, for a while, I thought I'm going to do this for the rest of my ministry. I love youth work. Really? Was, yeah, <laughs> so what yeah, changed? yeah. I did. But <laughs> anyway, I can give you the rest of the story. I, it's actually it's it's a little bit uh, related to uh, the book "Hard Choices." I um, I I, I got it familiar with Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. It's a very unique church uh, started in the late 1940s by Gordon. Cosby, and it um, featured small groups, um, a commitment to the contemplative life. They had a silent retreat center, uh, and a commitment to basically social justice ministry, a lot of ministries with the poor in uh, D.C., and after five years in Macon, uh, we just Packed up all our belongings on a ride truck, our two kids. They were two and four at the time and had no jobs, but just moved to Washington to be part of Church of the Savior, which I did for a number of years and um, eventually got into chaplaincy. Uh, uh, to tell you the truth, I was out of work and I needed a job. And this uh, nursing home called uh, Gordon Cosby, our, Pastor and ask him, we need a chaplain and uh you got any recommendations? He says, Oh yeah, here's Hank Dunn. So <laughs> so I I started in healthcare to tell you the truth, and I was very little prepared for it. I had I did, had never taken CPE at the time, and uh but they they liked me well enough to hire me and then we made it a full-time position. It was half time to start with and made it a full-time position, uh, after I was there six months. So anyway, and I don't know how you are, Saul, but it's, um, this is a call that I didn't even know I had till mm. I got into it. Yeah, It, it grew, uh, like I uh, it grew into a call and, um. Years later, when I actually, when I had written the second book, Light in the Shadows, I was sharing with my hospice team the book and passed it out and gave it to them. And one of the social workers says, Hank, you really found your niche. And I, my immediate <laughs> answer to her was, no, my niche found me. <laughs> and uh, so all that has to say is at uh, uh, hospice and Chaplains because I was a nursing home chaplain for twelve years, and then a hospice chaplain since, and uh, so hospice. And and I I actually carried a beeper uh, and phone for a local hospital. I did a lot of hospital chaplaincy as a volunteer too. So I had
1: all three areas. What was the foundation for writing this book? How choices for loving people?
2: Great question. Um, so I started as a nursing home in 1983 in Virginia, uh, northern Virginia, D.C. suburbs of Fairfax, and Virginia passed a natural death act in 1983, and our nursing home was very unique. We had a uh, a private, for-profit, family-owned nursing home, uh, standalone. It was not a part of a chain. And they actually had a lawyer on the staff. The owner did a lot of investing in real estate. So he had a, a lawyer that was on the ch- staff of the nursing home full-time, which was unusual. It was unusual to have a full-time chaplain. But the nursing home said, well, what are we going to do about this natural death act? And they said, well, "We're going to, well, let's tell every patient and family about their right to refuse treatment, their right to an advanced directive. And Hank, we want you to do that. <laughs> so... I was, again, I was so new at this, and uh, uh, bless our hearts, the nurses were wonderful in teaching me about end-of-life decisions and CPR and feeding tubes and, of course, started doing research. And after doing it for a couple years, I I thought, you know, we ought to put this in writing. So uh, I I proposed to our ethics committee that we write a pamphlet about end-of-life decisions. And to a person, they said, no, don't put it in writing. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I didn't until the study came out in about 1986, 87, 88, somewhere around there of, um, CPR done at, uh, Houston VA hospital and all the results of CPR for all those patients at the VA over a certain period of time, not one survived over age 70. And uh, I thought, oh my gosh, we got to get this information in people's hands. So I wrote a draft, c- circulated the draft to the ethics committee, and they uh to a person said, oh, this is great, let's do it. So it's it's one of those things that's easier to get forgiveness than permission. So, uh,
1: <laughs>
2: so that was it. So we, we published it and printed it and it was just for the patients and families at Fairfax nursing center. And as an afterthought, we sent it out to a hundred nursing homes in Virginia. And out of that 100 that we sent out to these nursing homes, we sold about 4,000 copies. Hmm. So we knew we had something here and, this was 1991, and those who have been around here for a while might remember that 1991 was when the Patient Self-Determination Act kicked in. And that was a law that's still on the books, a federal law, that everybody who receives federal funds, every um, hospital, nursing home, hospice program that gets federal funds, has to inform patients and families of their right to refuse treatment and their right to advance directive which my little booklet did. It was only like 36 pages at the time. Hmm. And so we we uh, sent out copies to every nursing home, hospital, and hospice in the country over the next two years. And it just started selling like hot cakes because people were scrambling, how are we going to fulfill this law? So I was very fortunate to have this confluence of events that I wrote this the law came into effect, people were looking for something to help them tell patients and families about end-of-life decisions, and uh, the rest is history. It's it's now in the sixth edition, it's sold about 4 million copies, and as you said, you found it when you got into hospice chaplaincy, (laughs) so uh, it's still still selling very well, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have stumbled upon it.
1: It's really amazing that uh, the moment needed a book like this, and then you're able to give birth and imagination to this wonderful book. Uh, What were the hard choices during the time of your writing?
2: Yeah. Okay, when I first wrote, I was a nursing home chaplain, and uh, so I did a, a chapter on CPR, and that's the, still is the, the kind of the main choice that people have to decide when for themselves or for caring for a family member of end-of-life decisions, whether we do CPR or not. Um, the success of CPR has not really improved that much over the 50 years or so that it's been done. It's about 15, 17% of hospice, ho- hospital patients who get CPR survived to be discharged from the hospital. So it's, it's uh, uh, not very successful itself, but we know uh, it doesn't work for people in the terminal phase of an illness. It doesn't work for um, uh, people with multiple problems and it doesn't work for people who do not live independently. So that's going to be all your nursing home patients, assisted living patients, uh, uh well, let me back off not all your nursing home patients those that might be in the nursing home for rehab that do not have multiple problems might might survive the c p r but it's a very low survival rate but what uh one of the things that I've added in the book and i I, I think people kind of respond to that this mainly is an emotional spiritual decision mm. and it's it's formed in the sense of a medical decision to decide about cpr but you're really deciding can i let go can i let go and let things be is it can i let go and let mom die i mean Hmm. uh, now in reality doing cpr is not going to save them but it feels like i'm making a decision to let them die and I think many times it's a horrible position to put families in to have to decide whether to let mom die or not. The truth is she's going to die anyway. So, um so CPR was uh, one of the big decisions uh, when I first wrote the book and then feeding tubes. And um uh, it's uh hard because um uh, especially if you've been keeping someone alive with a feeding tube for months if not years, and then have to decide whether we're going to stop this and let them die. It feels like I'm killing them, even though they're dying from the condition that rendered them unable to eat. So um, I felt that was important to have a, a chapter on that. Uh, fortunately, for um, the uh, over the six editions of the book, uh, we've getting more and more research on feeding tubes, especially for dementia patients. Mm. When I first started doing this um, back in the 1990s, uh, there was a research report done in about 2001, about 30% of advanced dementia patients in nursing homes had a feeding tube. And what the new research started showing in the late 1990s and early 2000s was it doesn't help these patients at all. It doesn't even help them live longer. It just Mm -hmm. makes them more miserable. And so fortunately, over the last 20 years or so, there's been a reduction in the number of advanced dementia patients getting feeding tubes. And um Uh, I like to think maybe my book has had some help, but uh, the research on it, there is a thing that came out uh, that uh, helped docs make a decision and families make a decision about feeding tubes for advanced dementia patients. And Anyway, so those were the two big ones. Then I added, um, in the 1994 edition, I added a chapter on hospice. So these three decisions, CPR, feeding tubes, and when it's time to shift to hospice or palliative care, comfort care only, uh, were the big decisions. Uh, And one other for nursing home patients especially was hospitalization. So those are kind of the four big decisions that families and patients face at the end of life, CPR, feeding tubes, hospitalization, and when to shift to hospice approach.
1: And and those are like you said; those are in most cases spiritual issues that manifest themselves to the you know POA or the family members like that. Yeah, uh, yeah,
2: yeah. That's why it, it turned out. You know, when they they turned to me I, I had actually at the nurse at the uh, um, nursing home ethics committee, where they we we decided, oh, we're going to tell all patients and families about this stuff uh, and Hank we want you to do that well I just moved from a half-time chaplain to a full-time chaplain and I'm I'm guessing the administration gonna think well we got all these chaplain hours what's he gonna do all that time but it was a great blessing because then I just started sitting down with patients with families and sometimes the presence of a nurse to help me explain the the medical side of it and it It really was the right decision because, uh, you know, they were going to have to talk to the doc anyway. If I talk to them about CPR, I can't write a no CPR order. The doc has to write it. So I I tell this families or the patient, or I tell the doc, if it was with the patient, you know, Mrs. So-and-so says she doesn't want CPR. You need to talk to her about that. So the doc had to end up talking to the family or patient anyway. So. But it, it helped to have a chaplain there just to talk about that spell. You know, are you ready to die? <laughs> That's the next thing after CPR doesn't work. Hmm. And uh, and so it it, it really it, it opened up a lot of uh, pastoral care, care opportunities.
1: Well, that will take a little break. Let me reintroduce you. Our guest is Hank Dunn. the author of Hard Choices for Loving People. We'll be right back.
0: Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com.
1: I'm Saul Abema. We continue our conversation with Hank Dan. Um, I remember we had a patient uh, who was in a hospice. Patient, and um, the daughter just wanted to keep him uh, on feeding tubes and despite of all the encouragement from the hospice team that it's actually not helping. So when I sat to talk with her and why are you doing this She's like this feels like I'm giving up on my father. You know this man has been there for all of, you know for me and my siblings is a good man. So withholding any kind of feeding it's like I'm giving up on him. So it, it you're right that it, it turned into a spiritual distress. So we had a long conversation uh, with as she processed this issue. How can hospice teams come alongside uh, people who are dealing with our uh, family members who are dealing with these real issues?
2: Yeah, great, great story. Um, you know, I've had just like you had that person say, it feels like I'm giving up. Uh, uh, I had people who wanted to do CPR on families who want to do CPR on nursing home patients. This is a, I just can't let go. I mean, the language these families use is is about an emotional, spiritual decision, giving up, letting go. And um, so one, and this course, is why I wrote the book. One is just informing them about the reality of what a feeding tube is and does. And so, like um, especially with feeding tubes, it's important to remind the family, and it's almost always a family member uh, making a decision about a feeding tube, remind the family that this person has a terminal condition. They cannot swallow for whatever reason, or or digest food uh, like we normally would by eating and swallowing. And that's terminal. Uh, if you can't eat, you're going to die eventually, and this is a terminal condition. So we're not talking about killing the patient uh, or even uh, speeding up their death, so to speak, because uh, they're they're in a terminal situation. So, giving those facts, and then uh, as chaplains, moving toward uh, just like you did, and you did the right thing. W- w- what's behind this? And it feels like I'm giving up. And I uh, actually, in in uh, both Hard Choices and Light the Shadows, I have a little poem I wrote giving up, letting go, and letting be. Mm. And it and it tries to help with the difference between giving up and letting go. Uh, I got that phraseology from a counselor friend of mine. This is back in the early days of AIDS when all these AIDS patients were dying. And a counselor friend said she had a patient, an AIDS patient, who said, I finally learned the difference between giving up and letting go. Mm. And he was having a hard time of, he didn't want to give up, but he could let go. And my addition of the letting be phrase in that uh, poem was, um, we're not really giving up. We don't have to let go. We're just letting things be as they are. And, uh, you know, the way we're created, if we can't eat, we're going to die. And so we'll just let things be. And Mm. it's a little more gentle, actually, than thinking of letting go. But letting be, letting go, they're very, very close. But it's different than giving up. Uh, It really is.
0: If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info
1: the modern hospice movement started in the U.S. in the early 70s, and you were chaplain in in 83. So you're one of the first-generation chaplains in in end-of-life care, in the modern end-of-life care movement, hospice movement. What changes have you seen from then until now? Good question. Um... (laughs) Well,
2: in many ways, not much, and and that's you know i kind of surprised, pleasantly surprised that the book still sells so well. But <laughs> but that the, the thing is, the reason is uh, we all we have new people who are now dealing with the death of their parents or their spouse. And we, we're we just, we as a society are just not prepared for it on the whole. And so um, in that way, nothing has changed uh, in the sense because we have new people dealing with death and they still have questions about CPR and feeding tubes. Um, there are... As we saw during the pandemic, uh, there there are new ways of treating conditions. And one of the things in the pandemic that, as I read, I was not involved in uh, hospital care in the pandemic, but um, other ways besides ventilators of helping people breathe easier. Uh, uh, what they call proning, where they actually lay the patient on their stomach, and they they can breathe a little better. Um, Of course, changes in um, medications and the use of medications, uh, fortunately, uh, addressing pain issues uh, can be better nowadays. Um, Now, big difference in the research is kind of mixed on this, but in the hospice world, I think like 70% of the hospices are for-profit hospices. Uh, a lot, many are owned by private equity firms who are, they're just interested in making a buck. And the reason that the, the, uh, I, I say there's research is all well, there. There's for-profit hospices can still deliver very good care, quality care, caring care, Chaplains, you know, the whole thing. So uh, it's not an argument saying for profits are bad. Uh, there is some difference in uh, the, the type of patients they choose to have. And uh, there might be some evidence that uh, the non profits end up with the more costly patients and the for profits don't. But again, on the delivery of care, uh, you know, I know. Many people who work for for-profit hospices. I've always worked for nonprofits, but uh, uh, just because nonprofit doesn't mean they don't care about money. <laughs> that's, that's, and, and any of us who have worked for nonprofits know they're they're looking for you know the, how those chaplain hours are being spent and what we're spending on literature and yeah. So uh, again, even though it's not a not a profit. We we still we in the nonprofit world do care about money, and I, uh, I we don't need to get into that discussion. But uh, so all that's to say is uh, uh, hospitals, their profit or for profit, are, are are can deliver, can deliver, and do deliver very good quality care. So the so, point is that
1: um, end of life care, due to you know fin- financial motivations, end of life care. Uh, has changed right as in a sense there's more motivation to make money which in some cases dilutes the care in some cases the care remains of good quality yeah yeah yeah, yeah and
2: i know i'm sure your you're all over the, the field as far as if, if they're in a profit non-profit or for-profit uh i know the frontline workers whether in a Nonprofit or for profit are there by the same motivation. We care about these people, sure, I want a job and I want a paycheck. but uh, uh I'm doing this because I care, and uh, that
1: doesn't change, yeah. Your second book, Light in the Shadows. What was the motivation yeah. behind that? All book?
2: right, so I've been talking to these patients and families for a number of years, and I still ran into some of these families that understood. Everything that's in the hard choices that CPR doesn't work for certain patients, the feeding tubes are bad for certain patients, and yet they just couldn't get to letting go. So, um, in in hard choices, you know, the last section of the book is on the emotional, and spiritual issues, and so what I did is I basically expanded that to uh, a whole new booklet with short pieces on different aspects of the emotional-spiritual issues. So I have thing on forgiveness, uh, uh, a thing on letting go and letting be, um, things on, you know, saying goodbye. Um, uh, what I consider some of the central issues that I've run into, plus not only that I ran into in my ministry, but also in the research and the literature Uh, what people are struggling with. Uh, Letting go of control uh, is a big one. And uh, uh, so Light in the Shadows, they're short devotional, if you will, pieces. Um, You can just read it, you know, in five minutes in one sitting and put it down and pick it up again. Uh, I know uh, families are taking care of these folks don't have a lot of time. Uh, Terminally old people sometimes are just too tired to read long things. So I wrote it in a way that you can just pick it up and read one thing and put it down and then pick up and read something else later and put it down. So that's what Light in the Shadows is. All. It's basically a follow-up to Hard Choices. Uh, hard Choices is, is your basic thing. I mean, I sell many more of those than the Light in the Shadows, but but it's it's still... Uh, a chaplain's like it a lot. I had one chaplain tell me she worked in the uh, emergency room. and <laughs> She liked to give light to the shadows in the emergency room, which just <laughs> totally surprised me. But she <laughs> recognized these people who rushed in here with, you know, grandma, them beating on her chest. They they need to work with letting go here. <laughs> so anyhow, <laughs> uh, uh, the shadows.
1: It is. It is a really wonderful book. Uh, and the devotionals are really small but uh, powerful. I'm here on page 67. I don't know if you have your book with you. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted you to read uh, a little bit there on page 68.
2: Um, quick story on this. Yes. And in, in, in Light of the Shadows, I have it uh, earlier as a um, poem, Giving Up and Letting Go. And I, I did a second edition, and I added this to it. And when I did the first edition, uh, uh, did editions of of Hard uh, Choices of Loving People when I did the 2001 edition. I sent it out and I had the poem in there, Giving Up and Letting Go. Mm. And Joanne Lynn, who is a hospice guru doc, she has done tons of research. I sent a, a copy out to her and she wrote in the margin, She says, Hank, I've stopped talking to families about letting go and I talk about letting be. So mm. that was the growth of how I changed this. So, Giving up, letting go, and letting be. Giving up implies a struggle. Letting go implies a partnership. Letting be implies in reality there is nothing that separates. Giving up says there's something to lose. Letting go says there's something to gain. Letting be says it doesn't matter. Giving up dreads the future. Letting go looks forward to the future. Letting be accepts the present as the only moment I ever have. Giving up lives out of fear. Letting go lives out of grace and trust. Letting be just lives. Giving up is a defeat. Letting go is a victory. Letting be knows suffering is often in my own mind in the first place. Giving up is unwillingly yielding control to forces beyond myself. Letting go is choosing to yield to forces beyond myself. Letting be acknowledges that control and choices can be illusions. Giving up believes that God is to be feared. Letting go trusts in
1: God to care for me.
2: Letting be never asks the question.
1: What are your final thoughts? Well, um,
2: it, it, this facing our own death and the death of our family members is not going to change. Uh, and that's kind of good news. We're, we're human and we all die and we all have to say goodbye to folks. And, uh, you know, being in the chaplaincy is, a God, what a privilege we have to be with people at the end of their lives and their families' lives. And uh, they're looking for a word, uh, a word of hope, uh, a word of consolation. And uh, we can help them, you know, get to that place. So, uh, just uh, commend you on your work and supporting hospice chaplains and all those chaplains out there that are doing such a great job. Uh, That we're we're doing good work.
1: You know, you've made an amazing contribution to end of life care. How can our listeners get a hold of you and a hold of these wonderful books? um,
2: yeah, uh, uh com is my website, and you can find out about the book and uh, our blog. Uh, you can uh, sign up to get the blog, uh, a blog about every twice a month, something like that. I send out videos too, um, on YouTube, and then uh, you can find the link on the website. Hey, I'm at uh, hospice chaplain Hank on uh, instagram i'd love for you to follow me there and uh and you can get my book on amazon too if you just find one you have on amazon probably get it on amazon but if you're buying the bulk definitely get it from a website because there's bulk discounts starting at 10 and then you know a 100 you buy a thousand there's so much cheaper so uh, uh do think of the website com.
1: Hank, man. Thank you. To me, in my eyes, you're a proper legend in this field. So it's really has been an honor uh, to talk to you. And um, I know this is a beginning of a good uh, friendship here. Thank you very much for coming on the show. You're welcome, Saul. Thank you for what you're doing. That was Hank Dunn, the author of Hard Choices for Loving People. Thank you very much for listening.
0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.